Hi, and welcome to Devos with D. I'm Pastor D, and I'm from the Heights Church. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Christian cliches and terms. And my subtitle is, What Did You Say? We're going to be looking at those trite phrases that occasionally we use when we're talking to other people. And hopefully, you won't throw tomatoes tonight. I hope you batten down the hatches, cinch your seatbelt, and let's get right into it. So there are some things that I'd like you to remember as we get into this lesson. Clichés are overly familiar or commonplace statements. They are a pat or mechanical phrase. This is kind of a glib phrase, a throwaway phrase. They may be misleading, meaning they may send people down the wrong pathway. Or they could very well be bad theology or non-scriptural. This study tonight may instruct or it may correct you. And that's okay, isn't it? Because God loves those he chastens. So let's let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do tonight in our lives so that we are better Jesus followers. I'm looking forward to that. So before we get into those actual cliches, should we use cliches? Well, they're not necessarily wrong, but as if we're going to use them, we need to make sure that the person understands what we, we're saying to them, that we clarify, we make it very clear our meaning so they don't go off with another meaning thinking that we said something that we didn't. Usually when this particular when these particular phrases are spoken, these cliches are spoken, they're usually an explanation for something that has no explanation. So we're trying to provide an explanation where really there is none. And we don't want to do that. It may not be helpful adding this cliche. And let me tell you, sometimes we can say the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person, and we're not going to get the reaction that we want. We need to think about what we're saying. Let's be cautious about what comes out of our mouth. Scripture tells us that life and death are in the, in the power of the tongue. That's what Proverbs says. Do they have any biblical basis, these cliches? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they are pretty accurate. Sometimes they're a deviation from Scripture, a misinterpretation of Scripture. We want to point people to Jesus and not just use glib phrases. We want them to know that they can go to the Bible and receive that comfort that they need from Scripture, that we were sharing the truth with them. Bad cliches can unfortunately shape our faith and our image of God. Yes, we can say something so long that we finally believe it ourselves, or it will alter or deteriorate how we see God. Listen to this quote, and it's from Rachel Wokum, and she's an author. She said this, be mindful when it comes to your words. A string of some that don't mean much to you may stick with someone for a lifetime. So we may just throw it out there, but it may stick to that person. They either um, take it negatively and it really does damage or um, 
it is not doing or sending them down the right pathway. So we need to be careful and we're going to watch what we're saying. I hope so. I am. Are you? Come on, we can. We can do it. So the first cliche tonight is he or she is in a better place. I don't know if you said that one. I think I have said that one in the past. And I don't use that phrase anymore. It is a condolence for a grieving person. And a condolence is sympathy with a person who has experienced pain, grief, or misfortune. And it's expressed in a declaration, either oral or written. So when we say this, he or she is in a better place, we are saying to someone that um, we know where they're going. Do we really know that? Do we truly know that? I want you to think about it. Really? Do we? Only God knows where the person's going. We might from scripture deduce some things, but we can't say definitely. We need to watch that. Are we using secondhand experiences? Meaning, you know, did you hear that from someone else? And so you just kind of picked it up and now you're saying it. Have you researched what you're saying? Cliches don't address the pain that is around or associated with loss. People are hurting. Again, we don't want to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. The spirit, if we think about it, our human spirit is immortal. So when, when we die and we leave this earthly body or this earthly overcoat, it must go somewhere. If it's not here, if that spirit is not here, where is it? Let's look at what the Bible says. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 and 8, and we're going to look at it in the New Living Translation. It says there, yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That's what we can ascertain. Then in John chapter 14, verses 1 and 2 in the New Living Translation, it says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house or my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? So Jesus is saying, I'm not a liar. The father has a place. The father has a home and he's preparing a place there. So when we leave here, there is somewhere else to go. You need to think about that. There is somewhere else other than here. Jesus is saying so. So our first cliche is everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Listen to this from Dr. James Nestigen. He's a professor emeritus at Luther Seminary. He told this story to his seminary students. So I want to share it with you. At a visitation event in a funeral home, the day before the funeral, a young man whose brother had died in a boating accident was approached by a pastor. The pastor said to him, everything happens for a reason. The brother properly hit the pastor hard across the face and knocked him flat. Well, 
That wasn't what the brother needed to do. He didn't need to be striking the pastor. But maybe the pastor should have been careful about saying what he said. Maybe that wasn't the right thing to be saying to this young man. When we say this, it implies that God is a cruel, malevolent, and sadistic God that's waiting to do us damage for his evil purposes. In James 1.13 in the message, it says this, don't let anyone under pressure to give in to evil say, God is trying to trip me up. God is impervious to evil and puts evil in no one's way. So God is not putting anything evil on you. We live in a crooked and perverse world. And so things happen. Can we make sense of everything that happens? I don't think so. Bad things happen. You know, there's some lingo out there that says says it another way, in a slang way. But I'm just going to say bad things happen and they happen to good people. We're in a broken world and we are not exempt from pain. As Christians, that doesn't mean that we're going to get off unscathed, not in this world. This is in an article by Christine Suhan, and she said this. God's plan is never for someone to have cancer, be brutally murdered, have their child raped, or experience chronic pain, illness, disability, or death. God's will is for us to draw close to him in the midst of the trouble, then walk with him through it all. He'll use these painful events to carry his message of hope, grace, forgiveness, and mercy. God will use whatever torment or whatever's happening with us that seems negative, that may actually be negative, and he will use us as ambassadors of his hope and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Isn't that good? Life is not easy, people. It's not. You know, um, people say, you know, life, um, you know, we can do certain things with our lives and we can have this perfect life. And no, no, there is no perfect life out there. People may present like it's perfect, but there is no perfect life out there. But I'm going to tell you one thing. Even though life isn't easy, it's easier with God. I believe God kind of acts as a buffer for some things. Yeah, bad things happen, but I love that I can have God to lean on, that he's with me in the struggle, that no matter what my stress level is, or it doesn't matter what's coming at me, what, what tragic event has occurred or is about to occur, he is with me and he'll never leave me. Let's look at John 16, 33. And it says this in the King James Version. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And that was Jesus. He's telling us things are going to happen, but you can still have peace in him. But we need to be in him to get this peace. God's plan was never for pain to be a part of the human experience. God is good. He's a good God. He's a faithful God. 
Listen to these scriptures. Luke 18, 19 in the NIV says this. Why do you call me God? Why do you call me, excuse me, correction. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. So God is good. Jesus said it himself. God is good. Psalm 34 and 8 in the NIV. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. He is good. He is with us. He is for us and he will stand with us and he will walk things through with us. So we're never left on our own. We're never left by the wayside because God is near. All we have to do is call on him. Are you going to call on him today? We're not going to get into that everything happens for a reason thing, right? Let's look at the next cliche. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. Christianity.com shared this study. It is a 2017 Berna study. And it said 52% of practicing Christians strongly agreed that the Bible teaches this phrase. What phrase was that? God helps those who help themselves. This phrase, I believe, underscores the necessity for people to take self-initiative. The root of this phrase goes back to ancient Greece. But the English version of this quote was first penned by Algernon Sidney, and he was an English politician that lived in the 1600s. I believe it's an outright lie. It implies that we must earn God's favor and God's mercy. If this, is, if this phrase were true, we become our first source of help and strength and not God as it should be. Let's listen to Romans 5 and 8 in the NIV. And it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we can't do that. We can't save ourselves. So before we were all cleaned up, before we received Christ, he had already died for us. So we couldn't help ourselves. And he didn't wait for us to help ourselves. God sent the Lord Jesus Christ. God helps us realize in scripture, that we can't help ourselves. God loves the rich, the poor, the downtrodden, the lost, the weak. He loves the healthy, the sick, the ugly, the angry, isolated, and unstable. He loves us. He sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe to them would have eternal life. So, no, I don't agree with God helps those who help themselves. Let's look at some terms now. The first term is intercession. What is intercession? You may hear that word and not really know what it means. It means to pray on behalf of another person or people group, like persecuted Christians or martyrs. It's to pray for situations like praying for a hurricane that's headed toward a city or praying about COVID and people that are dying from COVID, praying that, you know, this plague will be stopped. Or for a certain cause like praying against abortion or euthanasia. 
it's it means that we're not just praying for me and my four and no more. I'm not just praying for my family or I'm not just praying for not only my direct family, but I'm not just praying for maybe other people in my extended family. I am praying for others. It doesn't mean that we can't pray for our family, but intercession involves we let go of what our family needs are and our needs, and we are focused on the benefit of others. Romans 8, 34 in the NIV says this, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life? Is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God interceding for us. So if he's interceding for us on our behalf and on our family's behalf, shouldn't we be interceding for others? Something to think about. Intercession is often linked with fasting. And fasting is a discipline. It disciplines the flesh. So that it puts down the flesh. It buffets the flesh, as Paul said. And gets our focus off of us. And it really gets our focus off of eating all every moment. And it may even help us with our weight situation. No, I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to stop. I promise. But a lot of times... Intercession is linked with fasting so that we can go before the Father. It doesn't make him answer our prayer any more than any other time. No, that's not it. It is putting our body under subjection. And it helps as we go to pray for others. That we're not, it causes us to focus so that we're not thinking of all this, these other things or thinking of food every moment. Let's look at a couple of scriptures so we know what the Bible says. In Luke 18, 1. Jesus was talking to his disciples and he was about to share with them a parable. He said this, men ought always to pray and not to faint. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul said this to the church at Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. The second term is born again. The definition of this is being born in the spirit, resulting from placing faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that when we receive Jesus Christ into our lives as Lord and Savior, our lives are changed so much and we are so different that we can be called new creatures or new creations. To emphasize this total change in our lives, Jesus called the experience being born again. In the 60s, that term born again was used a lot. I mean, senators were saying they were born again and the president was saying he was born again. And, you know, everybody was saying they were born again. It was just like a, a pat phrase back then. It was also used by what people called Jesus freaks. It was a born again movement and they called the people Jesus freaks or Jesus people. In the 70s, it was called the Jesus movement and Pastor Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel churches grew out of that. Let's look at scripture. What does scripture say? In John 3, verse 3, it says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This was Jesus talking to Nicodemus who came to him in the night 
to ask him some questions. In John 3, 7, he says, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So Jesus is the one that used the term born again. In 1 Peter 1 and 23, it says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Let's look at the next term, redeemed. We hear songs all the time saying we're redeemed by the blood. Redeemed means to be loosened from a bond, to be set free from captivity or slavery, to be brought back, and to exchange one thing for another. In the Old Testament, redemption involved deliverance from bondage based on the payment of a price by a redeemer. The Hebrew words involved in this redeemed were pada, which is a legal term concerning the substitution required for the person or animal delivered. Ga'al is a legal term for the deliverance of some person, property, or right to which one had previous claim through family relation or possession. And Goel is the term for the person who performed the duties of the Redeemer. The term redeemed is found 18 times in the Old Testament and 13 times in the book of Isaiah. In the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of Israel's messianic hope and that in him, the long-awaited redemption has arrived. Deliverance of humankind from its state of alienation from God has been accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Redemption requires the payment of a price, but the plight that requires such a ransom is moral and not material. Humankind is held in the captivity of sin from which only the atoning death of Jesus can liberate. So we are redeemed. Listen to this that I saw in aboundingjoy.com. And it was in this article, Terminology for New Christians. And it said this, Slaves can be set free if someone with enough money pays the purchase price for the slave. The buyer essentially purchases the slave for himself, then sets him or her free. Because of sin, we were slaves. Slaves to both sin and Satan. When Jesus died on the cross, his death paid the price for our sin once and for all. He literally purchased us from sin, meaning he bought us back. Therefore, we who were once slaves bound in depravity on a road to hell have been redeemed. Isn't that wonderful? I am so grateful for that. That's a wonderful word, redeemed. And you know, many times people say, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And we need to say so. We've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Here's the last cliche, and this is one that usually will stop us all in our tracks because I've said it. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. 
you know what? When people come up, I used to say, okay, I'm going to be praying for you. Did I pray? No, I have to admit, I'm sorry. I just plain forgot. And one time in particular, something happened. A person who had asked me to pray for them, a sister in the Lord, came up to me, you know, many days later and said to me, and she was so excited and so joyous, and she was so thankful, thanking me for my prayer, because she just knew that because I prayed, the thing that she needed happened. I was so downhearted, so heartbroken, because I knew I hadn't prayed. Did I want to pray for her? Of course I did, but I hadn't prayed. And I tell you, I repented of the Lord. I told the Lord, I'm not letting that happen again and show me what to do. So what I started doing was when a person asked me to pray for them, now I'm not just saying I'm going to be praying for you. I would stop and pray immediately with them. Even if it was over the phone, I'd pray with them over the phone. And then I would make notes in my phone. I would give myself notifications so that I would be reminded to pray for them. So whatever it takes for you, to do what you said you're going to do. Use whatever techniques you need to use. Because I'm telling you, I was not going to have that happen again where I didn't pray for someone where I said I would pray for them. We've got to stop saying it if we're not doing it. Because you know what? It just makes us outright liars. I hate to say it, but you know, when we, when we do that, it makes us a liar when we don't pray. Listen to this comment from a sermon by Dr. Rory or Corey Wilcoxon, he said this, this statement carries with it, this statement, I'm praying for you, carries with it a promise on the part of the speaker to do something for the listener, something that many people may take for granted. When we are faced with a situation where we don't know the right thing to say, we will often say or often use this default to this phrase, turning it into a spiritual equivalent of we should do lunch sometime or the check is in the mail. The potential problem with I'm praying for you isn't in the statement itself, but whether or not the speaker will actually follow through on their promise. So I want to follow through on my promise. I know you want to follow through on your promise. So when we tell people we're praying for them, let's be praying for them. Let's look at the word of God. Let's look at Mark 135 in the ESV. And it says, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. That desolate place and the person that was praying there was the Lord Jesus. Let's look at James 5, 13 through 16 in the ESV. Is there anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In another uh, 
translation, it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It has great power. Let's listen to 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He, meaning God, hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So when we say we're going to pray, let's pray. Prayer is a powerful spiritual tool at our disposal. So we're going to use it. I know I am. I pray that you will also. This is my final thing that I want to share with you tonight. It's a quote from John Locke, who was an English philosopher and physician. He said, so difficult it is to show the various meanings and imperfection of words when we have nothing else but words to do it with. So again, life and death is in your tongue. I pray that you will choose life to speak out life to others. Let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks and praise for tonight's study. Lord, I just, I honor you. I know that this is not only for the people that I have shared it with, but I know it's for me. Lord, let us not just use glib phrases. Let us really get to the root of how we need to help people. Let us search it out by praying to you and finding out what you want us to do and be led by the Holy Spirit in it. So we give you thanks and praise for the word. It may have penetrated. It may have hurt. It may have stung. But Lord, we thank you that it is perfecting us. It's doing a work in us. And I know that you want us to do, um, to live it out. You want to do a greater work in us so that we can go out into all the world and do a greater work for you. We love and adore you. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.